Okay, um, let's open up with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the gifts that you have given your church. We thank you that you're so generous with those gifts. As we learned in our gospel reading today, that you're more generous than we deserve. We ask your blessing upon our Bible study um, as we finish going through the way that you give those gifts to us in the divine service. May it bless us, uh, enliven our hearts, and raise us ever more up into your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so just as uh, there's a handout up here, um, if somebody wants to help hand these out, there should be enough for everybody. Um, so there, we're, this is going to be four weeks. We're going to be finishing the, the liturgy. So three of those four weeks, we're going to be finishing up with the service of the sacrament um, towards the, and the conclusion of the service. Um, so that's kind of a big part of the service. So we're going to spend a couple of uh, a couple of classes mostly talking about the Lord's Supper and communion and, and all of that. Uh, and then the last session was going to be a Q&A. So if you have a question, a burning question in your mind that you've wondered about something that you've seen up in the worship space that you didn't know why it was there, or a question about any of the parts of the liturgy that we've covered, or maybe parts that we didn't cover, um, that would be the class where we're going we're gonna to discuss those things. So if you have questions about why we do the things we do in worship, why it's done when it's done, why we do it with whatever frequency that we do it with, or even just what's with the colors, what's with that object up there, why is this lit when it's lit and, this, and when it isn't. That'll be the, I wanted to have a time for you guys to ask a question if we didn't get to it in what we covered in the class, okay? Uh, so that'll be the, the last session is just gonna be question and answer. Um, now, I'll remind you as well, these are recorded. So if you miss one, they're gonna be recorded and posted on our podcast channel. Um, so also a reminder of that is don't share any dirty secrets you don't want on the internet because that it's going to be posted. Um, okay, so uh, just to do a short recap since we had a long break in between. So there's two main parts to the Christian worship service historically and all the way up to today for those of the Orthodox faith, which is what we are. We are an Orthodox confessing faith. Do you guys remember what those two big pieces are? They've been present since the beginning in Acts chapter 3. A service of the word and service of the sacrament. All right, service of the word and service of the sacrament. Those are the two big pieces of the divine service. Okay. Um, so in Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes on Pentecost and Peter preaches and 3,000 people come to faith and baptism, and then it says that among the saints they gathered... And they listened to the teachings of the apostles, and they fellowshiped, and they broke bread, and they prayed. Okay? That's essentially the same structure of worship we use today. right? Because it's centered around these two main pieces, the pieces of word and sacrament. Okay? So we've already, we had gone through the service of the word in the spring. Those are all up um, on the podcast channel, so if... If at any point you want to go back and review some of the things that were covered, you can find that on Spotify. It's just Ascension Lutheran PGH. Um, and I believe, I'm trying to remember what I titled them. I think it's like the Divine Service Lesson, whichever. Um, so if you want to search for that among those, because we also put our sermons and stuff up there. Um, 
So you can go back and review things there. So now we're going to finish with a focus on the second main piece of the worship service, the service of the sacrament. So when you think of the service of the sacrament, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Nothing. Communion. Communion, right? That thing where you go up and you eat a little wafer and you drink a little cup or you drink from the common cup and somebody tells you that's body and that's blood, right? And if anybody told you that in any other context, you'd be super weirded out. But not in communion. And we're going to talk about why. Right? Uh, we're also going to talk about um, all of the pieces that kind of lead up to it. So like today was, a, is a, was the best example of the services that we do here has the most complete um, service of the sacrament liturgy. It was the one we did today. So uh, you'll notice in your handout that we're going to cover all those pieces. So today is going to be kind of an overview of the parts of this section of the service. A little look at the history, so where they where they started being used in the church, where they come from, and then the theological significance and biblical basis for each piece. Okay, and if at any point we're going over a piece that you have a question about, um, raise your hand, and we'll, we'll do it. Yeah, not a question, but I haven't even started. Kind of preface. I think it's fantastic the way in our bulletin uh, every piece of the service has. The passage where it came from after yeah. it. Yeah. So if you don't understand it, you can look yeah. at the passage and you know just make it, it. It all makes so much more sense that way. That Very good. Yeah, yeah. And, and you'll notice in the new hymnals we got, if you go to and follow along in the front when we do the service, they are also all in there. So they they have the references in there as well. Um, so yes, that's and that's a key connection, right? Because. One of the things that we do as Christians is we, we have to discern between what is man-made and can be changed and flexible and what is from God that we must adhere to, right? And so that scriptural connection is, is an important piece. Okay, so follow along with your handout here. So the first is the preface, right? Uh, this is actually thought to be the oldest part of the Christian liturgy. Um, so there are many scholars who believe even the apostles would have used this during their lifetime. So that's how long it's been around. Um, if you kept your bulletin from upstairs, you'll find this. This thing keeps cutting out. Is that it is. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yes. 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 Okay. I'd rather do this than cut in and out over and over Okay, you'll find it on page 12 if you kept your bulletin from upstairs. This is the part that we sung. It's the part where I say, the Lord be with you. So again, a greeting in the Lord, which we began the service of the word with as well. Right before the collect of the day, I say, the Lord be with you. You say, and also with you. Very good. Uh, and then we go into what God is going to give us, right? So here, there's something special happening in communion. And maybe in a more visible, physical way than anywhere else in the service, which is that heaven is coming to earth in the presence of Jesus. And so what is our expression here in the preface is, lift up your hearts. And then you say, we lift them to the Lord, right? So we're, we're acknowledging the presence of God among us, and we want to be lifted up into that presence, okay? And then we say, when you're in the presence of God, it's proper to let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And then you affirm that by saying, it is right to give him thanks and praise. 
Okay. Um, so this has been around a long time, and it helps set the stage, the roadway to come into the presence of God. And it has history and roots in the Old Testament as well. They would sing psalms of ascent as they would go towards the temple. Right? And so th- this, this idea of movement punctuated by speaking or singing to come into the presence of God, which is what we're doing, because the service of the sacrament is going into the equivalent in the Old Testament of the Holy of Holies. We're going to be entering into the domain of God and where, where he has deigned to dwell among his people. Okay? And so that's being expressed in the preface and the words that are used there. Um, so you'll see under the theological purpose there, it starts with the same as Liturgy of the Word, and it's beginning to set two major themes that should be present throughout the entire service of the sacrament, which is heaven and earth coming together, and it's an amazing thing. It's a joyful enterprise. Uh, Because this is one of the greatest, if not the greatest gifts in all of creation being given to you. Then you have the proper preface, which in in our service today, it didn't have any of the, the sort of change, um, the parts that change in the middle, um, but it always starts with and ends with the same phrasing that you'll, you'll be familiar with. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you'll notice that throughout the year, there'll be different things put after that, depending on what season of the church year it is, because it's linking the teachings and what's happening in the church here to what's going on here. And then it always ends with, again, emphasizing heaven and earth coming together. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying or singing. Okay? Now, a way that I often encourage people to think of this How many of you have loved ones and friends who are Christians that have died in the faith? Would you like to go meet with them? You just did. You joined them in the feast at the table of the Lord. That's what that is expressing, the reality of heaven and earth coming together. And you're joining... You're getting a foretaste of the feast to come, if you've heard that, that wording before. right? The feast that's being referred to is the feast in the kingdom that has no end. And so in communion, heaven and earth come together, and we're joining, right? laud and magnify your glorious name, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. The company of heaven are all of those who have died in the faith who now are with God. And we're joining them in their chorus and in their feast. Right? Um, so, um, many people find that a helpful way to think about that. Because okay. um, it's true. Yeah, I never just read that. I just go through it. I right. never appreciate what you just said. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that one of the reasons I felt I wanted to do this is for that purpose. Not that there are a bunch of things that you maybe don't know, although there's probably some of that, but that you've been doing so often and that people all just sort of assume everybody understands what's being said. But either maybe you knew at one point, but you've forgotten because you've said the line, you know, 30,000 times over the last 40 years, or nobody ever explained it to you in the first place. 
And so, um, and so that's one of the reasons we're going through this is, is all of these things were originally placed into the service for a particular reason. To express a particular truth about the relationship between God and man that you have been brought into in Jesus and that he has given to the church. In this case, a big emphasis is going to be this joining of heaven and earth that we're getting a little bit of what is to come for eternity. Um, so the history of the proper preface, that wasn't really used in the very early church. It was, it was developed later um, after Constantine sort of made Christianity the religion of the empire and the church year started developing the proper prefaces developed along with the church year. And if you recall when I say church year, what am I referring to? If you've got a uh, bulletin, what does it say on the front under a Christ-centered community where we connect, learn, and serve? So many Sundays after Pentecost. It's the 16th Sunday after Pentecost. Right? So the church year uh, goes, starts in Advent and goes through Pentecost. Right? So in November we're going to be doing the last Sunday of the church year and then Advent and it begins again. Right? Uh, we're now in the time of the church, which is why you may be wondering why it's always green and the number just keeps getting higher. Well, that's Pentecost. Right, we're in the time of the church. Uh, because this is the time that we actually live in while we await the return of Christ. Right? Um, the first half of the church year is the festival half that goes Advent through Easter. And it ends with Pentecost and moves into the time of the church. So that's when you see a lot more of the colors change. The teaching is following the life and ministry of Jesus up through his ascension into heaven. Okay. Uh, the theological purpose, this one is mainly teaching, right? It's an expansion of the preface, gives you seasonal theological explanations, um, helps bridge the gaps and the connections between the bread and wine, body and blood, um, and we are in the phrases. Next is the Sanctus. So the Sanctus is considered to be the most ancient and probably common liturgical hymn of the Christian church. Um, it even has roots prior to the Christian church because it's based off of what Isaiah says he heard the angels proclaiming and seeing in his vision of heaven in chapter 6 of Isaiah. And so um, it's likely that Jesus himself sang some version of the Sanctus. Right? Um, and so the, one of the reasons that's always been where it's at and they, you know, we don't substitute like a hymn or a song for that is because in this case... We're expressing a heavenly reality on earth, again going with the theme of heaven and earth coming together, and we are joining in the chorus of heaven. So we're going to sing what they're singing in heaven, right? And so there were the words of scripture that were taken from visions of heaven that they were proclaiming around the throne of God. Well, we're going up to the table of the Lord, the Holy of Holies, the throne of God, and so we're going to join in the worship of heaven. Um, it was, its use in the Christian church is referred to by Clement of Rome, who was bishop from A.D. 92 to 101. So er, it's, it's mentioned very early on in the Christian church. Uh, but it's widespread use in almost in, in every Eucharistic liturgy, every service of the sacrament by the end of the 4th century. Every Christian church uses it. So this one has some theological purposes here that are lined out with these bullet points. 
It echoes the feeling of a sinful man who has somehow ended up in the heavenly court of God. Right? So um, somebody's got a Bible, they open up to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to look at that. What do you think, just kind of off the top of your head, you would be feeling if you found yourself in the presence of God? Before we get into what Isaiah expresses. Dumbfounded. Dumbfounded. Humble. Scared. Scared. Yeah, I mean, when the angels show up, much less God, what is the first thing they always have to say? Do not be afraid, right? Because... It's scary when you're not holy to be in the presence of holiness. And so now we're in the presence of God. So that's really, the Bible expresses that's the most common reaction, is is essentially terror. So the way I've always tried to articulate it in my own mind, to try to get a, a sort of a feeling of what that would be like, is you know in the presence of God all the things you've done, said, or thought, you know that he knows all of those things, and you know that he has total righteous justification and just erasing you from existence. And you probably partially agree that he should. So it's not just like a, at this point, it's not just an awe of God. It is terror. Right? Because we have made ourselves an enemy of that. Right? That's a scary place to be. Now, in Jesus, of course, this is the, the equation is totally changed because he stands in judgment in, in front of God in our place. And so that, that fear becomes an awe, and then the court of heaven, as we're getting to here in communion, becomes a place of joy for us. Right? So in Isaiah chapter 6, Uh, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Sound, word it sound familiar there, right? And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Um, so I think I mentioned this a couple of years back, but when you sing or, or you say, um, Lord God of Sabaoth, you're not saying Lord of the Sabbath. You're saying Lord God of armies. Sabah is Hebrew for host. So Lord God of hosts means he's the king of great armies. Right? So he's, he's no joke. Right? Yeah. Uh, the Battle of Him of the Republic is based on Isaiah 5 through 7. Well, we usually base our hymns off a lot of the same stuff. That's right. Um. So what is I yeah? Well, I was just going to say this is my favorite passage in the Bible, quite, frank, quite frankly. And what's great is that in a moment's notice, Isaiah realizes the unbelievable gap between yeah. the greatness of the Lord and his own pathetic self. Right. Right. <laughs> like it's just beyond his imagination. Right. Yeah. Right. And his reaction is, "You don't need to say anything to me. I don't. I don't belong here. I'm going to leave." Right. <laughs> and then, of course. As with most of what we think is going to happen, there, there's something else that goes on. So Jesus isn't here yet in this vision, 
But what Jesus is going to do is express in a different way. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So you see some similarities about the movements and what's being done there and what we're heading towards when we go to communion. Something's coming from the altar. And where is it being placed? In your mouth. And what does it do when it gets there? Yeah, right? Here's what he says. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is toned for. So the, so the, the Sanctus is getting us into this vision. That we are sinners that are somehow now we find ourselves called by God himself through his word into the court presence of the king of all things. And like Isaiah, when we really realize what's going on, the greatness of God is so great, I recognize immediately I have no place here. I shouldn't, I shouldn't be here. And yet he comes from his altar... Your guilt has been taken away. Your sin has been atoned for. You would think that that happens to us, we wouldn't sin anymore. You think, <laughs> right? You think. Yeah. <clears throat> the second part comes from the second part of the Sanctus comes from Psalm one eighteen twenty five and twenty six, and somebody uh, turned to that. Um, so this is this is what is repeated again when the primary movement of God coming from His altar to us is done in Jesus when he enters into Jerusalem. So the New Testament reference for this is Matthew 21, verse 9. And what do the people cry out? Hosanna in the highest. highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You have all the words of the Sanctus right there in those those two sections of Scripture. The Holy, 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 and you have blessed is he, Hosanna in the highest. So you're, when you sing that song, you're seeing it with the angels in heaven and with all the Christians who have gathered around the altar of God in all time and place. Like you're a part of that in that moment. That's what we believe is going on. Somebody got the song? Want to read it for us? Uh, verses 25. 25 and 26. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. All right. So we are echoing, and this would have been, um, it's in your notes here, that that would have been a psalm sung as you were coming into the temple to worship. So that's why it's placed where it is in the service. That you're coming, as you're coming into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God to receive his gifts, you're seeing the praise um, of God. And, and for us as Christians, it has even deeper meaning because the reason we can do that is because Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Earlier in Psalm 118, it talks about entering through the gate of righteousness, right? which we can now do because Christ entered in through that gate before us. Right? Um, and he's the one that brings us in. So, you know, again, you have this theme of journeying from earth to heaven. But the first move in that journey is actually coming from heaven to you. Because 
Something has to be done about the natural response to the presence of God. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Right? Something has to be done. And so what is done that comes from the altar of God is Jesus. That is how your guilt has been washed away and your sin has been atoned for. And this, lastly, the second part is signifying um, that Jesus is the one who's coming to give you this thing. Right. Yeah. I'm just glad that we, as a denomination, decided to go with the bread rather than the hot coals in the mouth <laughs> on <laughs> Sunday. Yeah. Uh, perhaps another manifestation of God's mercy, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, very good. Um, I see I forgot to take the prayer part out, so just to pass that. Um, the words of institution. So uh, these are the words that the pastor speaks on the night when Jesus was betrayed. He took bread and when he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So perhaps this one has the most obvious historical starting point of any of the parts of the service. Um, it is Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper um, when he celebrated the Passover with his disciples prior to his passion and his crucifixion. Um, so there's a couple of things to note. Um, historically, this started with the church. Right? So as soon as there was a Christian church, this was being done in worship. The remembrance of words of Jesus. This is sort of, in, a, in other ways, it's described as his last will and testament, the final, you know, sort of wishes and will of Jesus for his disciples. And so that's why we are to remember the words. But it's also the only time that in a meal, Jesus asks his disciples to identify bread with his body and to repeat it. That it's something to be repeatedly observed. And remembrance is a tricky word for, for the modern ear. It means something very different in, um, in the, the biblical history. So um, the, the people of Israel to, were called to remember the Passover. And it was celebrated every year in remembrance of what God had done. Right? But also in anticipation of what he will do in Jesus. And so our remembrance, because some of the confusion comes with this word as people think, well, it's just a meal that's an occasion that's supposed to remind us of something God has done, just like the Exodus in the Old Testament. But when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, he wasn't delivering you as well. Right? That was a specific thing he did with a specific group of people at that time in that place. In Jesus, you are participating in the deliverance of God through the remembrance, through the acting out of this event. Okay. Um, that we actually had in our in our uh, service today. Go to page fourteen. Right after I say the words of institution, I say, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Right. So it's an act of proclamation and participation. 
Um, and then in giving us your body and blood to eat and drink, you lead us to remember and confess your holy cross and passion, your blessed death, your rest in the tomb, your resurrection, <coughs> your ascension into heaven, and your coming for final judgment. So by participation, and Paul, Paul says this in his letters, right? Is this not a participation in the body of Christ? Is this not a participation in his blood? Um, the other sort of scriptural avenue for understanding the significance of this would be covenantal. Um, when a covenant was made, which is what Jesus is doing here with people um, in the Last Supper, as he's establishing a covenant, a new covenant. So he's replacing old Passover with new Passover, a lesser deliverance for a greater deliverance, is that he is <clears throat> establishing a covenant with Hebrew. So in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word was kathav, which means to cut when you are making a covenant, which exhibited the fact that it was permanent. It wasn't something written that could be erased. And it was usually established by the carving of flesh and the giving of blood. So when God makes a covenant with Abraham, he cuts, I can't remember if it's a, a bull or an oxen or something, he cuts it in half, and then um, Abram walks through the blood in the midst of the two pieces of the, the carcass of the animal. Right? The blood was the establishment of the covenant. So in this case, which what is the blood that's establishing the covenant? Jesus' blood, right? And in establishing the covenant by carving it into his own flesh, he has made a permanent, eternal covenant of salvation for those who are cleansed by his blood. And so when you receive that on your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. Um, it also recalls, of course, images of the temple and the worship in the temple. Um, the sacrifices of animals were a stand-in for what becomes the ultimate sacrifice for Christ. But blood always plays an integral role because the price that's paid for sin is life. Right? The wages of sin is death, and life exists in the blood. And so the blood is paid as the price for atonement. Yeah. It makes me think of how in many denominations uh, the wine and the bread represent Jesus' body and blood. Where right. We know that it is Right, communion has this beautiful element of being for the entire church while simultaneously being specifically for you. And in American Christian churches, we usually really get the for you part pretty well because our culture tends towards the individualistic side of things. The part that we usually miss is the communal nature of it, even though we call it communion. To the word itself, right? Um, and that's, uh, so today, um, every once in a while, I'm going to have a little bit more of an extended talk about communion when I make that announcement, expressing what is really going on, right? Um, that it is an extremely intimate connection that we share. That we're coming to the table of the Lord, confessing faith in him, receiving his gifts. And there's a reason for a long time in the church, at this point in the service, those who are not members were no longer present. They were dismissed after the offering and the prayers, and then the service of the sacrament was done just with those who were baptized, believing members of the church. Um, because this is this is sort of the most intimate 
confession of faith in the salvation of God and Jesus that we have. And so when you think about it in that sense, it is rather odd to expect that people would give you that the first time you come somewhere. Right? Um, it'd be sort of like you invite somebody over to your house for dinner and then they want to get in your bed and sleep with you at night. <laughs> but that's not the order of the way that things work, right? Um, so <clears throat> the the communal nature expresses that confession of faith, and as we talked about before, it is an act of proclamation. Um, so you are saying something, whether you're speaking it or not, when you do it. So it doesn't really matter in your own mind what you're thinking is going on, because when you go up to to communion here at Ascension, and let's say I'm a visitor, what am I going to think about what you're saying when you do that? You believe. Yeah, you believe what this church says, right? Because you're participating with them. Right? That's the same reason why it'd be very confusing and strange for you if you went to another church and you saw me taking communion at like a Catholic church when you're visiting some family, because your your immediate assumption is that well, wait a minute, which is it? Because by me doing that, I'm communicating something to you. It doesn't matter to you if in my head I'm thinking, I know what this is, so it doesn't matter who gives it to me. And this is also an active witness about the glory of God and Jesus. The reason you're here, the thing you're coming to receive, is because you think it's super important, and so we're going to make sure that it's done in reverence and, and faithfully. And when you get here, because we want you to come, we want to make sure you know what's happening. Because imagine, again, the image of Isaiah coming into the, the, the throne room of God. Do you want somebody to do that not really knowing what's happened? No. No, right? We, our church practices closed communion for the benefit of those individuals. We don't want them to come into the presence of God, not even recognizing that he's there, and then doing things foolishly in his presence that will get them in trouble because that's what the Bible says will happen. So, if you have family and friends who come to church here that are members of other congregations that confess a different thing, they shouldn't come up to communion with us. Not because we're mean and we don't like them, but because they don't share in that intimate confession with us. And you don't want to put them in a position where they're confessing two things that can't be true. Right? Just like it would be wrong of me to go to a Catholic church and take communion there and one of you sees that or hears about it I'm so in confusion in your mind as to what's actually the truth okay. um, part of the confusion on this particular topic is I would say for the last 50 or 60 years communion has been sort of usurped for an evangelistic purpose it was never intended to give Communion is not, not a means by which someone comes to faith. It was never intended to be used in that way. And so when you have a visitor who comes, even if there's somebody who says, like, I was really taken by what you said, I believe what you're saying, I want to come to communion, and I'll say, hold on a moment. We need to go through this a little more carefully because some serious things are happening here, and I want to make sure you know what's going on. Right? And it's also part of uh, what signifies membership here. Right? That this, is, this is our gathering point, our shared confession of faith. Um, <clears throat> There's something else I was going to say, and I lost it. Oh, 
Well, you always say too that put your arms in front of your. Yeah. Yeah. The last time I was at a Catholic church, the first time I saw it, the priest did say that because I was with a bunch of Catholic people. Yeah. And so I walked up and I did that. Yeah. I was glad he, he said that. You know? Yeah. And because what you're trying to do when we express that is we want to express two two things. One is. Like, it is my desire that everyone in the entire world be able to take me. I want that. God wants that. That's why he gave the gift to the church in the first place. But he also says that it needs to be done in a certain way for it to be the blessing that he intends it to be. And so I also need to make sure somebody knows what they're doing when they're coming into the presence of the king. And you can even think of it in terms of an earthly king. Right? If you've never been in the presence of a king, you don't want someone to just send you in there without telling you anything. Because you might end up doing something and the king will say, okay, off with your head. <laughs> because you just have never been there before. You don't know what's going on. right? So we also don't want to do a disservice to somebody like that as well. The other reason, oh, this is what I was going to say. The other reason is we don't believe that this has the urgency of something like baptism. So if you go to church... If I, if I thought it was that way, there's no way we'd still be doing communion only every other week. Right? So if you come to church and you don't get communion that Sunday and you die in a car accident on Tuesday, you're not going to help with that. Right? Um, or if you missed a Sunday where we did have communion and, and the same thing happens, you're not going to hell because you didn't get communion. Right? Communion is for the nourishing and strengthening of faith, the sustaining of the life of faith in the Christian church. Um, and so think of it like a meal, which is easy to do because it is a meal, right? But think of it like your other meals. If you don't eat dinner for a couple of days, are you going to die? No. No, right? The same with communion. Okay? Now, if you go six months without communion, that's not good. I can't say your faith is dead, but I can say you're playing fast and loose with some really dangerous cosmic stuff. And I think you should get your butt in church and get some communion. Or I'll tell you often, and some of you may have heard me say this to you specifically, like if you haven't been here in a month, and there's a legitimate reason for that, I'll bring it to you. Because I think this is an important thing that you need. Particularly when you're struggling. It's meant for that purpose. So those two elements of it, it's powerful, real, and a big deal, and it's intimate, and it's not urgent, mean that I'm not going to be put in a situation where I have to make a decision based on a 30-second conversation where you're coming into my house and saying, give me all this stuff. It's not the way it's going to work. And it's not the way it's going to work because I'm looking out for you. right? And that's, that's our responsibility collectively as a congregation is that we don't want people to get into situations like that. Okay? Now, there's a lot of things that can go, uh, there's a lot of variables that can go with any particular situation, so I don't want to spend a bunch of time hashing those out. If you do have a question about that after we're done, feel free to come up and ask me, um, or you can save it for our fourth session when we're asking all these kind of questions. Okay, um, any other questions about words of institution and the Lord's Supper? Okay, next is the peace of the Lord. Um, so the history of this one, uh, looks like I forgot to write in there. Um, so the, uh, 
I think the history of this is, is pretty, pretty old as well, um, develops along with uh, communion. Most parts of the, the movement parts of liturgy are developed in the fourth century or so when it becomes a bigger enterprise, bigger buildings. The service has a lot more formality attached to it as a result. <clears throat> the theological significance is it is a proclamation of what is being given to you. So um, one of the reasons when I say that, I don't do it all the time because sometimes I forget, but most of the time when I say that, what do I do with my hands and with the bread and the wine? When I say the peace of the Lord be with you always. Nope. Raise what? My hands? Nope. Yeah. I raise the elements. I'll hold the cup, and then I hold the piece of bread over the cup. Because what I'm proclaiming to you is the peace that's being given through these things. The peace of the Lord that's coming to you in communion is through the body and blood of Jesus. So that's, that's the purpose of it. Pastor, that's, yeah. that's before you've actually taken the communion. Yes. Because, yeah, I was getting confused there. I thought you meant when you gave the flavor. The, Oh, uh, no, 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 yes. But you're talking about during the service. Yes, yep. Got lost. Um, then, um, then we go into the Lord's Prayer. So um, this has always been associated with liturgy of the Lord's Supper, um, and it's given to his disciples um, in Luke chapter 11. Um, they ask him, teach us how to pray, and he gives them the Lord's Prayer. Um, the theological significance of this is the Lord's Supper is the culmination of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer. It is the answer to all of those petitions. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. Guard us from wickedness and evil. Right? All of those things are answered in what is being given to you. Right? Um, so, give us this day our daily bread is a prayer requesting for God's provision for all that we need. And our prayer is answered in the giving of the bread of life from heaven. Right? Now, obviously, daily bread means more than just communion because if all you did was eat the wafer that I give you and drink a little bit of the wine, physically in this world, it would happen to you probably die. Right? That's not enough food for you to live on. So that's clearly not uh, what it's saying here. Um, Luther in, in the small catechism describes daily bread as all the things you need to support this body and life. And then you get a long list that if you had to memorize it in confirmation you'll remember, right? House, home, wife, land, animal, shoes, blah, 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 blah. Okay? Um, <clears throat> but thus, we pray this prayer we have been taught by Jesus and then it is answered as these gifts are distributed to God's people. Um, then we get to distribution. So um, distribution, there were some interesting things I learned here that I didn't know. So actually, um, the continuous um, stations of communion is actually the older practice. Um, it isn't the railing and kneeling as the older practice. Um, because if you think about it, it makes sense. When Constantine declares Christianity to be the, the, the religion of the empire, and you have these gigantic basilicas, and you have, I mean, imagine us doing what we do for a thousand people. How long do you think that would take? Probably like three hours or something, just to do that. So uh, my previous church, which was, uh, when I was there, worshipped about 290 a week. Um, in our services, we had a continual procession. So the pastor would hold the host, and the assistant, one assistant would hold the, the individual cups, and one assistant would hold the common cup, and you would come up, the host in the middle, and then pick which one you were going to do there, and then you'd head back to your seat, 
And then instead of doing a dismissal for each table, like we do here, we did a dismissal for the whole congregation at the end. Okay. Um, and those are just practical considerations. Um, so, for example, if we doubled in size, we'd probably have to shift a little bit the way we, we did that. I probably would drop the dismissal after each table and, and um, all that. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be really appropriate to talk about intention here. Because the first time I ran into that, there were like thousands of people, and it didn't make any sense. Um, well, so intention, the purpose of so intention is the practice where you take your bread and you dip it in the wine. So intention is is done usually for a couple of reasons, not really related to time. Intention is done for um, if you have issues with alcohol. Um, people will do that to have very little, but you still get both elements. Um, and then, especially when imagine, so right now what you can do is you can have individual cups that have non-alcoholic wine in them. But prior to like, I think really like 1940, no churches had individual communion cups. It was just the common cup. Yeah. Right? And so if you had alcohol issues, intention was the way that you could get the wine without drinking enough wine for it might be a problem for you. Um, the other way to do it is, is it's a pretty sanitary way because you're not, you're not like licking the wafer and then dipping it in. You just dip, dip the wafer in so there's no like saliva exchange um, in there. So some people, if they have real, if they're really worried about germs, they do that. Um, so those, those are the, there's nothing wrong with that practice. You can do it if you want. Um, but those are the main reasons it's usually done. But it's pretty quick. I mean, it, there's no real time consideration there. Um, okay. Um, so uh, you can either do it by stations or by groups. Those are the two most common ways. We do it by group here. Um, kneeling is a more recent custom. So uh, when you do communion, and this, is, this would be um, a good thing for you to remember, especially if you have like a friend who's from another LCMS church, and let's say um, they come up. Um, one of the things that I usually can tell whether or not I should give somebody communion is if they know what the heck's going on. <laughs> so sometimes I get to somebody and they don't put their hands out, they don't do anything. It's clear they've never really been in a situation like this, they don't know what's happening. Right? But when you do, people put their hands out. So the most common way is right hand on top, supported by left hand. Um, there's really no right or wrong there. You can do right or left. But that's the most common way. Probably stems from weird superstitions about left-handedness. <coughs> I learned it the other way around, and I think that I'm pretty sure that, like, so it's the other way around, I think. Yeah, because I just looked it up, too. Oh. Maybe I recorded that wrong. I'll have to look that up. Are you, well, did you look up what's currently the common practice or what was historically? Well, what I'm saying is, what I, what I wrote was from history, so I don't know if it's different now. I could have, I could have recorded it correctly. I'll look at that. Um, but, but it doesn't really... It, I mean, it doesn't really matter. Um, I mean, if you put your hand out like this, I'm not going to grab your other hand and put it on. Um, but um, 
the the reaching out part is is a part that is actually important because in baptism we do nothing, right? In baptism, God is doing all the work and claiming us as His own. But that's one of the reasons why it's a prerequisite to something like communion, because in communion, God is drawing you to Him and you're reaching out for His gift. Right? So, yeah. When, like, we were just talking about it, when we were younger, Pastor used to put the wafer in our mouth. Yeah. Yeah. So, how, so, how is your reaching out expressed that way? Yeah. Well, you're not like, mm, but like you also you also don't sit there and he doesn't have to like pry open your mouth, right? You're opening your mouth and you're clearly presenting your tongue so that he can place it. Exactly. Is that twelve? Okay. Um, so keep this handout. Um, we'll we'll finish the last bit of this. It goes a little bit more on the next page. Um, we got through most of the main parts of communion. After this is sort of the dismissal and the leaving of, of the divine service. We'll cover that at the beginning of next week. Um, and like I said, if you have any questions about the stuff we talked about today, you can come up to me afterwards, but I want to let people go. So let's close. Um, I thought there were a few extras. You can have, you can have mine when we're done. Okay. Um, let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.